Come on a journey to lost civilizations. See ancient artifacts up close and long lost ancient scrolls. The strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient Mesopotamia. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome. My name is Bob Saunders, and I'll be the MC for the programs. It used to be called Centerpoint Tower. Now I think it's called Sydney Tower. Anytime relatives or friends come to visit Sydney, I always take them up there, either to the restaurant or the viewing area. It's the best way to see Sydney, uh, I think, because I point out Taronga Zoo, Manly, the, I point out the top of the sand, the Warunga, the Sydney Adventist Hospital, the airport. And we look at all of these areas from a bird's eye view. And I think the journey we're going on here is sort of a bird's eye view of ideas, history, current events. And uh, you'll be able to look at things uh, from Gary's eyes, our presenter. Now, Gary has a background in medicine. He's spoken this very series in many different countries. He has a degree in ancient and modern history, science and religion. And he's traveled to the Middle East and Europe. And uh, a lot of the pictures we're going to see, maybe you've dreamed of going to those places. I'm very happy to introduce to you uh, Mr. Gary Webster. Could you put your hands together? Thank you, Bob, and good afternoon to everybody. We're going to take a fascinating journey through these programs together. How many have been to Egypt here this afternoon? Okay, to Petra. Yes, a number to Petra. Well, you'll be able to check up, check up on us and make sure we've told the real story here this afternoon. But we're going to visit some of these places and many more in this journey together. Now, this afternoon we have two parts, as Bob said. Our first part, Egypt's treasures, the secrets of the lost scrolls, and then our second session, we're going to go to the ancient civilization and city of Babylon in Iraq. So hold on to your seat and let's go together. One of the things the ancient people was concerned about was the future. They wanted to know what the future held. For example, you can visit some of the great museums of the world like the British Museum or the Louvre Museum and you can see tablets like this one here. This is a bird omen tablet. They believe they could forecast the future by the flight patterns of the birds and so on. Even used oil on water. So drop of oil on the water and the way the patterns took place, the ripples and so on, that would be able to tell you your love life that's coming up or whatever it was. These were some of the methods the ancient people used in Mesopotamia. Even cut open sheep's uh, inside, uh, cut the sheep open, took out his stomach and examined his entrails and his stomach to see what the future held from that as well. On top of that, there were lunar eclipses and, and these sorts of things. So many of these tablets, by the way, we're not talking about the tablet you swallow here. These were clay tablets they wrote on, of course. And uh, so these tablets that we've discovered are now in the great museums in Europe today, these are supposed to tell us, or they use them to foretell the future. 
And of course, many people today in, in the world are anxious about the future. I've noticed in recent times uh, that many more people have been attending these sorts of programs than in the past. People are anxious about what the future holds. And well, we might when you stop and think about what is taking place in the world today. You think of the Brussels attacks and those terrible um, attacks in Paris as well. Many people are anxious to know what on earth is going on. So much of this is taking place today. I was taking this series in Poland this time last year, and uh, they were very concerned about the Ukraine crisis right on the back door for them. And, of course, that's not over at the moment as well. But these things are concerning people today. While I was there in Poland, there was that horrific plane crash into the mountain where a pilot just took the whole load of passengers right into the mountain on one of the German uh, wings aeroplanes. What a tragedy. And people are wondering, where on earth are we headed in the world today? On top of that, there is the global climate change problem, melting polar ice caps and so on. And then ticking away in the background is a global financial economic crisis. Well, we wouldn't call it a crisis today, but some of the leading economists feel we're living in a house of cards, economically speaking. And so many people are anxious today about the future, and they're asking the question, what does the future hold for our world today? You go home and you type in Google prophecy or predictions or future, and you watch how many hits you see. I did it on one occasion, 74 million hits. People are wanting to know what's going on. What does the future hold? You think of the column centimetres in our tabloid magazines and so on. They have increased enormously over the last 40 years. People wanting to know what's going to happen next. Where are we headed? I was down here in India in the sacred place for the Hindu people and the Ganges River at Banaris or Varanasi as it's also called. And I noticed that right here in this place, someone had set up their astrology shop because it doesn't matter where you are in the world. On the same trip, I came to Bangkok and there in Thailand, somebody had set up their palm reading booth because many people believe you can tell the future from the patterns in your, in your palms of your hands and so on. People today are really anxious about the future. What I also noticed was that in the year 2012, as you recall, many things were supposed to happen. The Mayan calendar uh, was drawing the world's attention and many people predicted the end of the world, among many other things. But actually, what happened? Well, nothing happened. The point is, it's not easy to predict the future. That's why I raised this issue. It's not easy. There were many thousands of people trying to predict the future just two or three years ago. Some of you will remember the year 2000, of course. Many things were supposed to happen as we changed from 1999 to the year 2000. But what happened? Well, again, nothing happened. But there were thousands of people predicting many things around the world, but nothing happened. Meaning, it is certainly not easy to predict the future. In fact, I noticed in These Times magazine some years ago, they had done a survey of the predictions that were being made. And they discovered in their survey that six out of 250 predictions were actually correct. That's only 3%. You could guess at it and do just as good. Now, I'm not knocking the psychics. I'm simply saying it's not easy to predict the future. In fact, they also noticed that the average for the leading psychic, these are the best of them, 
they have a, a batting average of 16%. So for every 100 predictions, they get 16 right. Now, when you think of it, that's a very clear indication that it's not easy in the predicting game. So I think it leads us to a question, doesn't it? Can we actually know the future or is it just wishful thinking? Can we really know the future? Well, let me tell you, if you go to a source that says it knows the future, you would need two essentials to put your, your, uh, your life on the line with that predictor or that source that says they know the future because you're going to make decisions on what they say, you see. You would need two things, two essential ingredients. Number one, you would want historical accuracy, meaning what they talk about in general is actually factual and, and historically accurate. It's not based on myths and legends and fairy tales. You would want to have a substance, a source that has substance behind it. It's got statements that are true, even in life as it is today, not talking about the future at all, just what it talks about, it gets it right. Second thing you would need is you would need a source that has a proven track record of fulfilled predictions, dependable predictions, in other words. A batting average of not 16% or 3%, but 100%, because what about the percent that you, you, know, you, you stake your life on and it doesn't work out? You'd want a batting average of 100%. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about here. Say, for example, I tell you that on Monday morning, BHP Billiton shares are going to reach an all-time low, one cent per share. But on Wednesday morning, they're going to hit an all-time high, $300 a share. But on Friday morning, they're going to hit an all-time low again, half a cent per share. So I tell you, now listen, this is what you need to do based on my predictions. You need to sell your house. You need to borrow as much money as you can. And on Monday morning, you go to the, to the stock market and you buy up BHP Billiton shares and buy as many as you can. But make sure that on Wednesday night when you have this whole lot that you sell them off when they're at the all-time high on Wednesday night. Make sure you've sold them off. You need to get rid of them because Friday morning they're going to be way down again. Now, are you going to sell your house? Are you going to borrow money from the bank and wherever else you can get your hands on money just because Webster says so? No, no. What you're going to do, isn't it, is you're going to check up on my economic predictive track record. You're going to say, well, listen, how much success has Webster had in terms of the stock market and predicting certain trends? Now, if you find that I predicted the, the fall of 1987 and I got it right again in 2008, 2009 with the GFC and so on, you may start to think about getting your money out of the bank and, and mortgaging your house to get some cash, right? That's what you're going to do. You're going to check up on my track record of predictions. So those are the two things you're going to need if you want a source that can deliver the goods. Number one, does it deal with historically accurate information? or even current stuff, is it accurate or does it get it all wrong? Secondly, what's the track record like of the predictions that have been made? Did they actually happen? Now, is there such a source? Yes, there absolutely is. And you're going to be delighted by the time we finish this afternoon to see that very clearly. And what I'm going to do this afternoon is share with you the clear evidence for a source that does know the future and gets it right every time. We are going to go to university history. Uh, as we go through the evidence, not just today, but in the future programs. And we're also going to go to archaeology. And those of you who have already been to the function room next door, 
Um, you'll have seen some of the archaeological artifacts that we have there. We have many more. We'll be bringing them out each day. That's just a sample today of some of the ones we have. But we'll be looking at what archaeologists have discovered as it relates to the future and so on. So we make sure the source we're talking about is indeed, it does have a proven track record and it is historically accurate. So let's talk about archaeology first of all so we all understand a little bit about archaeology. Archaeology really is about digging up the past, if we could put it that way. You see, the ancient people, many of them, tended to build on hills. Obviously, it's better to build up there because if an enemy comes, it's much easier to fight them if you're up the top than you're down the bottom going up. And the second reason was you're above the floodplain. If a flood happens, you're well and truly secure up there, generally speaking. So they built on these hills, but these hills grew over time. You can imagine, for example, an earthquake hits a certain city in the Middle East in ancient times. Now the buildings are going to come tumbling down. Many of the walls will come down and the roofs will come crashing in on the people or if they're there. And uh, so when it's all over, they need to re, you know, rebuild. So what are they going to do? Well, they're not going to bring in the bulldozer for obvious reasons back then. Some of the structures will be standing, some solid ones. So they bring in fill as much as they need and they build on top of existing structures. So three or four hundred years later, here comes an army. They attack the city. The people run away or they're killed. The city is burnt to ashes. There's still going to be many solid structures. So when someone else comes into this area, maybe two or three hundred years after that, they're going to bring in fill and build on top. So as the years go on, the hill is growing through time. Uh, as one civilization builds on another. Perhaps an easy illustration is Tel Megiddo. Some of you might have been to Tel Megiddo. This is in Israel. It's a very famous site. You might have heard of the Battle of Armageddon. It gets its name from this place, Megiddo, in Israel. And archaeologists have been excavating here for many years. Now, they have about 30 civilization levels. You can see a couple of them here on the screen. You'll notice up here is a more recent one down here is a, a more ancient one so they built on top i think if you've ever been to jerusalem anybody been to jerusalem okay you can see this very clearly in jerusalem when you walk on the streets of jerusalem today this is certainly not the level they were walking on 2000 years ago because the city has grown by about six meters how can you tell where well, the archaeologists have been at work six meters down and they found the Roman cardo or the pavement where they were in their their marketplace and so on. You can see that very clearly today in Jerusalem. So we're six meters above where it was 2000 years ago. So the city is built. Now, when it comes to archaeology, they use pottery to date things. Why do they use pottery? Well, pottery styles change through time. For example, if we have someone here who's uh, an expert in cars, he can tell you he doesn't need a whole car, he just needs the back bumper bar. And he can say, that's a 50s car, that's from the 20s or that's from the 70s or whatever. If we have someone into fashion, they can tell by just looking at the front of a dress, oh, that's from the 1700s, that's from the 1950s, because they're experts, they can see that fashion styles change through time, as do car um, uh, designs and so on. Well, same with pottery. Now, when you dig in the Middle East, seldom do you find pots like this one here, a whole pot. You find them, of course, um, another one here and another one here. Most of the pots you find are broken. That's why when you go over one of these tells, you see heaps of pottery everywhere scattered all over the surface of the tell. 
And in fact, you can do surveys this way. But most of it was broken. Now, for, a, a, for an archaeologist, you don't need a whole pot anyway. Uh, all you need is a piece of the bottom or maybe a jar handle like this one here, part of the jar handle or the, at the base or the rim around the top because they've seen so many of those, sort of, they know what time period they come from. So as they dig, we take the pottery, we take the dirt, and we sieve every inch of dirt. So we dig it, we sieve it, and we collect the pottery. And we're reading where we are in time as we're digging down because of the pottery that's found. And in fact, when you go to the Middle East, even India, I've been to India, and you say, I've seen that pottery in the, middle, in the Middle East. I've seen that pottery in Israel. I've seen a similar thing over there in Lebanon or somewhere because they traded. You can imagine a woman's got a nice pot and the next door neighbor comes and says, man, where'd you get that pot from? Well, I bought it at the local bazaar. It came from Greece. So either the local potters wanted to copy that stuff, which was probably not such a smart idea because they couldn't match it anyway, or they import more of this stuff. So this pottery is all in different, pla different places of the world from the same time period. So pottery is very important to help us know where we are in time. So make sure you have a look at some of that pottery we have. We'll have more there during the, the program as it goes on. So let's talk first of all this afternoon about archaeology's most famous discovery. I guess for everybody, if we said, what's the most famous discovery, we'd have to say it's got something to do with Tutankhamun's treasures, wouldn't we? I mean, in 1922, Howard Carter, digging in Egypt, discovered this amazing tomb. We go to the magnificent land of the Nile, that's Egypt, of course, and when we go to Egypt, we think of the awesome monuments that are there in that land, like the Colossi of Memnon here at, uh, at uh, Luxor, or the mysterious temples that one finds through Egypt, like the Queen Hatshepsut's mortuary temple at Dur al-Bari on the western side of the Nile where they tended to bury the dead. But, of course, when anybody thinks of Egypt, we immediately think of the, the mighty pyramids, don't we? these incredible uh, structures that we have here in Egypt. Now, when you think of these pyramids, they are really like a mountain of stone. I'll come back to Howard Carter in a moment, how this relates to Howard Carter you'll see in a moment. But they're a huge mountain of stone. This is the largest of the pyramids, Khufu's Pyramid. It's about 2.3 million stones, it's estimated. It's about 150 metres high thereabouts. So a very large mountain of stone if we could man-made mountain of stone now if you cut the stone from this one pyramid into cubes 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters and you put them end on end they would go around the our country more than twice around the continent of australia from one pyramid that size block so you can appreciate how massive these things and for the burial of the king so a, 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 literally a mountain of stone. Now, if these pyramids were hollow, these are some of the buildings you could fit inside. And by the way, up the top of these pyramids, they had this white Tura limestone. You can see a little bit of it left here on the, the top of one of the other pyramids there at Giza. Now, if it was hollow, these are the structures you could fit inside. You could put in the Muhammad Ali Mosque here from Cairo. Inside it would go the Notre Dame Cathedral from Paris. That could fit in there at the same time as the Muhammad Ali Mosque, as could St. Peter's of Rome and St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And you could still fit in the Colosseum inside with those other structures all at the same time. That's the volume of this one pyramid for the pharaoh for the afterlife. Now, but it, the problem was with these pyramids was they were an advert to the tomb robbers. Listen, 
inside there is a bunch of treasure, gold and so on. If you can get in, help yourself. That's really basically the way they saw it, many of these. Obviously, they took it that way because we've looked in all the pyramids and they've all been, the stuff was taken out by the tomb robbers. And so the pharaohs of the 18th and 19th dynasties buried their pharaohs here in the Valley of the Kings, in Luxor, south of Cairo by quite a long ways. Now, the time period we're talking about here, by the way, you notice up on top here, what does this look like? looks like a natural pyramid, doesn't it? And some have suggested maybe this is why they, they buried their pharaohs here, because it's sort of like a natural pyramid as well. But they cut their tombs into the cliffs here in this valley, and you can wander around here today, as many of you have done. The, fifth, the 18th dynasty, the time period, if you're trying to get your head around, that's from the time of the Exodus. You've heard of the Prince of Egypt, that film Hollywood put out some years ago for the kids. And then, of course, Cecil B. DeMille's epic, The Ten Commandments. This is the time period we're looking at, the time of Moses. Now, in 1922, Howard Carter uncovered the tomb of Tutankhamun. It was actually buried under a bunch of rubble from a tomb up the hill from one of the Ramesses. And they found the tomb underneath the rubble. And when Howard Carter looked inside, it was stock full of stuff. He had three couches at least. He planned to sleep in the next life, obviously, with all those beds. But inside there were life-size statues of guards. Then there was also his state chariot. And, of course, his throne made of wood overlaid with gold leaf and exquisitely decorated. Make sure you have a look at the tiny replica we have, just a small one of that throne and just have a look at the exquisite craftsmanship on that thing and imagine seeing this thing in its full size the throne of the king then in the tomb was also the canopic chest now the canopic chest was interesting because this is where the organs are put once the mummification process is, is finished now when they opened this chest here inside there was this alabaster box that you can see on your left there when they lifted the lid off that there was these four jars here with a head of the kings sort of on top of each one when they lifted the lid off those inside there was a solid gold little statue of the king and inside were the organs the kidneys and the lungs and so on pretty desiccated but uh, dried out well and truly and you can see one of these we have on display in the um in the in the room next door in the function room so make sure you have a look at that solid gold little statues of the kings like a coffin but inside his organs and then of course there was the burial chamber itself and the burial chamber inside was a huge box a golden box it was made of uh, of wood overlaid with leaf and gold leaf and so on and um, inside that box when they opened the door there was another box when they opened the second box there was a third box inside that and then when they opened the third box there was a fourth box inside that it's very clear that the russians built these things didn't they you know like with the babushkas that they have you know doll inside another doll but anyway this was the the, the burial chamber with the coffin inside the fourth one there was this yellow quartzite sarcophagus and then when they lifted the lid off this this stone coffin if you like there inside was a coffin in the shape of the body of the king when they lifted the lid off this inside was a second one when they lifted the lid of the second one inside was a third one one inside the other like this when they lifted this one or tried to lift it they couldn't it was solid gold and then inside that was the mummified body of the king 
the 19-year-old young man. When they, over the face of this man, of course, was the famous funerary mask. And we have a, a replica of that there. You can see what it looks like. It fits over the shoulders, down to the back and into the chest area. And uh, you can put your head inside it. This famous funerary mask was made of solid gold. So pretty valuable indeed. And you can see that on display in the Cairo Museum today. Well, that's the most famous discovery, but it's certainly not the most important discovery for archaeologists. There are three discoveries that probably rank as the most important ones for understanding. And these are the ones that took place in Egypt, in Iran, and in Israel. Let's begin with the most important one uh, in Egypt. Napoleon Bonaparte came down to Egypt in 1798 and they were working in the Delta area at a place called Rosetta when they discovered this stone, famous stone known as the Rosetta Stone today. We have a replica of it here on display next door and you can see it's in three sections. Up the top we have the Egyptian hieroglyphs where they didn't understand this. What are all this writing on the tombs and the temple walls and the papyrus documents? They could not understand any of that to this point in time. So what does it all mean? So here they have the hieroglyph writings up the top. In the middle was a cursive Egyptian script. We call it demotic. They didn't understand that either. And then finally down the bottom, fortunately, they did understand this section because this is in Greek. And they guessed correctly that this was the same message in three different languages, as we just explained. Now, they worked for about 20 years on that, working from the known Greek language through to the hieroglyphic language. For example, if you go next door and you see this replica, you will notice in the Greek, we can point it out to you, the Greek word for king, basileus. It occurs in a number of places down the bottom section. So you can see as they look at that, then they see up the top, there's a circular thing. That's the cartouche of the king, his signature, if you like. That crops up at certain places. So they were able to work from the known words through to the, the unknown. And it took about 20 years, thanks to this brilliant Frenchman by the name of Jean-Francois Champollion. Mainly, he significant, played a significant part. They were now able to read the writing of the ancient Egyptians. What did that mean? It meant this. We could now understand their cultural the culture of ancient Egypt. We could understand their medical practices. And we'll talk about that in a future program, some of the practices of the ancient Egyptians. They could also understand their religious beliefs. They could understand how they um, constructed some things because they've left us some information in some places. They've, we can understand so much now about their history and their culture and their beliefs and so on. The second great discovery was in Iran. By the way, if any of you are interested in going to Iran, we're going there this year later on. Iran, in my estimate, is one of the best places to travel in the Middle East today. You, we, we get scared to death here in Australia because we think of Iran, every man's got a, we think is a terrorist or something. Um, well, that largely has probably to do with the sanctions that have been on up until recently. But when you go to Iran, number one, the people are super friendly, uh, very friendly people indeed. And secondly, we didn't see only one man with a machine gun in the whole country, and that was up in a guard tower in an army base. There were no police running around with machine guns like you see in Israel and so on. Uh, I'm not suggesting that it's necessarily really safe, but what we could see, it looked pretty good, and we certainly had a great time. Um, so this is Iran. Now, in Iran, there is a famous inscription at a place called Behistun at Kamanshah. Now, this inscription here, 
is a, an inscription of Darius the Great. You'll notice this, this guy up here, if you can see the faint red here. This is Darius the Great or Darius the First. He's got his foot on the chest of someone he's conquered. You can see that there. And then he's got these guys along here in tow. They're being taken prisoner because they've also rebelled against the king, uh, King Darius. The story itself is not that important to us. What is more important is the fact that it's in three sections, three areas of the script of the script three different languages and so now we have something that we could work on and so they worked on this for many years at the risk of their life because they had to do paper mache squeezes of the inscription that's pretty risky when you're up high back in those days and so they were able to copy this thing and work on it uh, and thanks mainly to a British soldier by the name of Henry Rawlinson and after many years they were able to now we're able to read the cuneiform script. This strange writing that you see here, we called it cuneiform. The Persians used it. The Hittites used it in central Turkey. They certainly used it in the Assyrian kingdom, the Sumerians, and in Babylon and all those. Mesopotamian language, if we could put it, writing script. The cuneiform script. So now we were able to understand the history and the culture and the religious beliefs and all the different things that go on in civilization in Mesopotamia, we could understand it. And that's a whole huge civilization area in part of the ancient world. So the Mesopotamia, now we understand Egypt. Now there's one more great discovery that was made. And that, so by the way, these are some of the cuneiform tablets. You can see many of these tablets. In fact, Ashurbanipal, the great Assyrian king, around about 600 B.C., he had a whole library of these things, 20,000 clay tablets. That's a bunch of tablets, isn't it, of different sorts. Now we are able to read these things. In fact, in the British Museum, the basement has heaps of these things that they've never yet read. They just don't have time to read it all. They dug it out years ago, and the gradually they're working their way through it. By the way, in the centre you can see a tablet here. We have that on display. It's called the Gilgamesh Epic. If you've ever read the story of Noah, Hollywood made Noah famous recently, this is the Babylonian flood story and it reads very similar to what you have in the ancient biblical record so now we can read all of this stuff here from the ancient Mesopotamian region the third discovery was in Israel by the way anybody been to Israel here yes a few anybody can't swim this is the place to learn to swim right because you can't sink in the Dead Sea great place to swim um, but the Dead Sea is famous for a discovery that was made here in 1947. On the northwest edge of the Dead Sea is a place called Qumran, and uh, a very barren place. And of course, this is the you know this is very over a thousand uh, feet or 300 400 meters below sea level. But at Qumran here in 1947, two boys, at least two boys, were mining the goats of the Bedouin clan. One of the goats strayed into a cave, toward a cave and Muhammad Adi, which means Muhammad the wolf, young Muhammad threw a stone at the goat to try to get him back. He missed the goat and the stone went into a cave and they heard the sound of breaking pots. Now Muhammad and his friend raced up to those caves hoping to find treasure. But all they found when they got up there were these old pots and inside some of these pots were some old scrolls. And we have a replica of one of those pots today, a large pot. The scrolls were in there. Now, these scrolls, um, 
as far as these young kids was concerned, that was a non-event for them. But they gathered them up, took them to their Bedouin clan, and the Bedouin clan took them to Bethlehem where they sold them to an antiquities dealer by the name of Kando. And Kando bought them for a hundred US dollars. A few years later, these same scrolls were selling for 500,000 US dollars. That's inflation, isn't it? In anybody's terms. Then today, of course, they're priceless. Now, why are these scrolls so valuable? That's the question I guess we need to answer. Well, there are about three reasons the scrolls are valuable to scholars today. First of all, they're very old. Anything old seems to be valuable, doesn't it? How old are they? Well, we know from three methods how old they were. First of all, we have, we know from the style of the script. Because script styles change through time as well. As car styles change and pottery styles change, so do script styles. For example, if you try to read 16th century King's English, I guarantee probably most of us can't read it today. But it's still English. That's how things have changed over the last 400 years in our own language, English language. So the script styles were a great indicator of how old these scrolls were because they know what time period they come from. They also did radiocarbon dating on them. And finally, with some of the scrolls, they discovered coins, which helped to also date because they've got the name, the, the name of the person on them, some uh, Agrippa, somebody, or this, or the, whoever it was. And so these were able to help them date the scrolls. We know these scrolls date back to as old now as 100 to 200, even more, more than that, BC, in the 200 BC. So very old scrolls indeed, over 2,000 years old, in fact. Now, the second thing is, and probably for our, what we're talking about here, is that these scrolls contain ancient predictions with a proven track record. Many of them actually look at what's going to happen or is happening today. I'm going to show you that one this afternoon in our second session. It's remarkable. I mean, you would think you're almost reading the newspaper when you read these things. You would think you were reading a a description of current events in some of these predictions. Absolutely amazing. And we'll have a look at some of those. And these are another reason why these are so important. Ancient predictions with a proven track record and so long ago, at least 2,200 years ago. Um, well, what are these scrolls? Well, there were three lots of scrolls that were found in this collection. It's believed that were, they were written or copied by the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of Jewish monks, if we could put it that, monastics, living out in the, in the area of the Judean desert and south of, of uh, Jericho today. And these men lived this life and they copied the scrolls of the Hebrew people. About a third of them concerned the rules of their, their group. You know, what you could do, what time you need to come home at night and all that sort of stuff. Just the rules of their, of, of their community. The second lot was some of their beliefs and practices as a community, more of their religious beliefs. The third lot, and most of it, the greatest proportion, 40% of it, they were actually from the, what we call the Old Testament part of the biblical manuscripts or the Bible. In fact, they discovered every part of the Old Testament except one book, the book of Esther. They found two complete scrolls of the prophet Isaiah. It was about nine metres long, uh, 27 feet for those of you thinking how long that is. We have a, a copy of that or a replica of that on display. So these were the scrolls, most of them or 40% of them were of this nature. And it's these scrolls that contain those predictions. Now, The third thing, what they discovered, was this, that the biblical manuscripts haven't changed through the centuries. Uh, 
You see, scholars thought that if you copied the originals and someone copied the copies of the original and then down the time someone copied the copies of the copy of the copy of the original and you worked your way down through time, surely you would introduce a whole heap of mistakes. The older the thing, the, the more recent ones would be a lot different than the originals. Uh, that was the theory that the scholars had, and it makes sense because we've all played Chinese whispers, haven't we? If I whisper in Bob's ear something and we pass it around uh, the, the theatre here today and, and over here Esther who's translating here into the Korean language, she, she whispers it in my ear, it's going to be a whole lot different. We've all played that game. Well, scholars thought this is how it's going to be with the biblical records. Well, when they compared the Dead Sea Scrolls with the oldest manuscripts they had, which were 900 AD, 900 years after the time of Christ, when they compared them with what we have today, in fact, in the motel room or wherever it is, you have a Bible somewhere, you compare that with the Dead Sea Scrolls, for all intents and purposes, the meaning is the same, it hasn't changed. And there's a reason for that, we now know, because the scholars, the scribes, I should say, the Jewish scribes who copied these things, were very particular in the way they copied them. For example, we now know that some of the practices they use, they do word counts. So you copy along for a while and then you say, right, I better stop now and count, have I got the right number of words? And if your word count is wrong, oftentimes they would screw the whole thing, throw it in the rubbish bin and start all over again. Now you imagine if you've got the Isaiah scroll and you get to the very last paragraph and you make a mistake, screw the whole 27, 9 metres up and start again, that would be quite an ordeal, wouldn't it? But they were very particular and that's why it's believed that we have the same today as what it was at least 2,200 years ago. All right, now let's come back to the essentials for knowing the future. We mentioned there are two things you would need if you want to know the future. You would need historical accuracy and you would need a proven track record of dependable predictions, meaning predictions that were actually fulfilled, they actually happen. So let's do that with the ancient biblical manuscripts because we're saying the Dead Sea Scrolls, they have these very old documents with full of predictions, as we're going to see. And what about, first of all, its historical details? Did it get it right? Let's check up on that, and we'll go to archaeology to answer that first question, historical accuracy. Does it deal with facts as well, and does it do it right? Before we go there, let me share with you a statement by one of the world's leading archaeologists. By the way, when you leave today, make sure you get a copy of our magazines. We want to put good stuff in your hand because some of you want to go back and read up on things. We have a copy of our magazine on Egypt and it will look at the Rosetta Stone and all that sort of thing that we talk about. We also have our archaeological diggings magazine, which has a lot of material in it from the ancient world. And uh, many of the schools, the high schools also get this in our country today, government schools as well, because it's got a lot of good information for the kids at school as well as for those who want to take a little more seriously and a copy of the program that we have this afternoon. So we want to put good stuff in your hand. Now let's come back to this guy here. Here's a scholar, an archaeologist, probably one of the greatest archaeologists of our age, W.F. Albright. This is what... Uh, this man said. By the way, this guy was author of over 800 works on archaeology and related ancient history topics. He was also the director of the American Schools of Oriental Research. That means that's like the creme de la creme of archaeological uh, um, schools. And so he's the director. So he's no fool. That's the point I'm making. Now, this is what this guy said about the ancient biblical manuscripts and its relation to ancient history and archaeology. Notice what he said. In the centre of history, he said, stands the Bible. 
He said, thanks to modern research, meaning archaeology, we can now recognize its substantial historicity, meaning it's historically accurate. He says, um, to sum it up, we can now treat the Bible from beginning to end as an authentic document of religious history, which is why many archaeologists use the biblical data in the field, because so it's, it's, it's got this historical accuracy thing to it. Now, why does he say that? We're going to share with you the evidence for that now. So why does he say it's historically accurate? Let's have a look at that by going to two or three places together this afternoon. Let's go to Petra first of all. Petra, of course, is famous for these magnificent buildings that were carved out of the, 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 the rocks of this place. Now, Petra was a city that is mentioned by the ancient Egyptians. It's mentioned by the Assyrians, but it vanished from sight. Nobody knew where Petra was for about 900 years until 1812 when a Swiss explorer by the name of Burkhardt came to this area. Now, you'll notice Petra is at a very significant place. You will notice here, if we can get it up here, this is the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were found up the top here. This is the Dead Sea, and down here is the Gulf of Aqaba. The Gulf of Aqaba is a very important place for ancient times. But a trade route ran through this area here because trade routes connected right through throughout Israel down to Egypt and so on and down to the, the Persian Gulf. Now, Petra was on the trade route and that's why it was such an important strategic city. So Burkhardt, here, Burkhardt um, knew about this place and uh, in 1812, this guy decided to take a journey. Now, Burkhardt, it's believed, had converted to the Islamic faith and he was very fluent in Arabic knew it very well and was very familiar with the culture of the Arab peoples in this part of the world. And one day he asked his, a friend of his, a guide, would you take me? I want to go down to Cairo and I want you to guide me from Damascus where he was living. Take me down from Damascus to Cairo. So we're going to go down through, you know, Syria and so on, part of Syria into Israel on the Jordanian side, I should say. So, the guide takes him. As they're journeying along together, the guide starts to talk about this place carved out of rock. And Burkhardt, who's familiar with all this history, he realises maybe this is Petra that, that we've lost sight of. So the guide told him that it's near the tomb of Aaron. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Moses, Moses has a brother called Aaron. And Aaron's brother According to the, the Muslims, he's buried up on the top of Mount Hor here. If you've got good eyes, you'll see right at the top, there's a little white dot here. That's a little tomb of Aaron, so they say. So he's a very famous person to the Muslims as well as to the Jews as well. So Burkhart says to his, his, his Muslim friend, listen, I want to go to Mount Hor, because he knows this is where Petra is, because the guides told him this is where this place is, but he thinks it's Petra. He says, I want to go up there and I want to offer a goat as a sacrifice in honour of Aaron. Now, no um, Muslim is going to deny a fellow brother such a, a privilege to do that. And so he says, all right, I'll take you to Mount Hor. Well, they finally get to this area and they come to an area now, or a town known as Wadi Musa. And he hires another guide who takes him down the Wadi. And as they travelled down this place, no doubt probably on horseback like so many people do today, as they start to descend this wadi, they, he notices these buildings start to emerge or that have been carved out of the rocks. You can see some of them here throughout this area over here. 
The further they go down, the more interesting things beget, be, be, become. As he goes down, there's a narrow cleft or seat between the, the two cliffs, narrow passageway. And the cliffs begin to tower above your head. And as you walk down here, you'll notice some of you have done this about a hundred meters high above your head. These cliffs are just straight up and you walk through this narrow passageway for quite some way. When you come toward the end, and no doubt Burkhart notices a building begins to emerge. And when you come out of that cleft between these, these cliffs, there is the magnificent El Kazna or the treasury as it's called, famous icon for Petra itself. Well, Burkhart wanders around the valley looking at all the amazing structures in this place. Nobody's seen this, at least from Western people, for the last 900 years, and he's captivated by what he sees. Magnificent tombs and, and houses carved out of the, the, uh, the, the, the rock faces here. And then even a great temple up the back known as El Dieu or the monastery. I mean, look at the size of this thing. Here's a guy trying to get in the door, and it's quite a climbing just to get in the front door of this thing. And this is all just carved out by these people known as the Nabataeans who came into this area. So as Burkhart's looking at all this, the guide gets suspicious. I thought you came here to offer a goat to Aaron and now you're looking at... And so he said he threatened him with a rifle and Burkhart decided he'd better get out of here, offer his goat. And he renounced to the world when he came out that he'd rediscovered the city of Petra. So and a magnificent place to visit. Well, who are the people? The original inhabitants of Petra are believed to be the Edomites. Now, if you know anything about Israelite history, you'll know that the father of Israel was Abraham. He has a grandson called Jacob, and Jacob has a twin brother called Esau. Esau's descendants settled here in the area of what we call Petra today, and they became known as the Edomites around about 1900 B.C., now, in the middle of Petra is this magnificent rock. We call it Um El Bayara because that word means the place of cisterns. Because up on top of this great hill in Petra is where the Edomites are believed to have lived for some time. You can see the cisterns carved out of the rock. So when it does rain, which is seldom, the water can flow down and fill up these great big uh, receptacles that have been cut into the rock. So you can see these on the top of Um El Bayara. Now, Um El Bayara, in Hebrew, this place is the word Sila, which means rock. In the Greek language, of course, rock is Petra. And so many believe this is where this name comes from, this rock in the middle, which the Edomites, it's believed by many, to have inhabited this. Now, the biblical prophets like Jeremiah, if you've heard of him, they wrote of this place. They wrote about Petra a long time ago in the 600 BC, for example, with Jeremiah. Notice what he said about this place. You, talking about the Edomites, who live in the clefts of the rocks, probably talking about the passageway between those, those cliffs, who occupy the heights of the hill, probably referring to Um El Bayar. Many scholars believe this is what he's talking about. Not only was it Jeremiah, but another biblical prophet whose writings are in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well, Obadiah. This is what Obadiah wrote, very similar about this particular place. The pride of your heart, he says, has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Now, by the way, this prediction was made, or 
was made by the prophet when the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were had just about to attack or had attacked Jerusalem and uh, the uh, Edomites sided with the Babylonians. So the biblical prophets are, are making some predictions about the future of Petra here. All right. Now, archaeology, you can see the biblical writers talk about this place and now we come along and we find the evidence for this. So this is why we're talking about sort of what Albright meant, historically accurate, but even greater than that. Come with me to Moab. Moab was an ancient civilization in Jordan uh, back in the ancient times. Now, I want you to notice a statement that's made in the ancient biblical records concerning a king of Moab called Mesha. You find this is written about the 900 BC and King Mesha of Moab's rebellion. Notice what it says in the biblical text. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep master and he had to pay the king of Israel, whose name was Omri, the wool of a 100,000 lambs and of a 100,000 rams. Probably this guy was a Kiwi with all those sheep hanging around the place, wasn't he? But it came to pass when Ahab, son of Omri, was dead, that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Joram was the name, son of Ahab. All right, that's the biblical story of it. Now, if you go to the Louvre Museum today, and I'm sure many of you have been there, because this is where the Mona Lisa is and so on, but inside the Louvre Museum, there's a whole great section for archaeology and so on, and you can visit the, the Middle Eastern section. When you come here, you'll notice the Moabite stone or the Misha Stele. This comes from the 9th century BC. When you look at what's written on the Misha Stele, this is what it says. I am Misha, king of Moab, Omri, the king of Israel had oppressed Moab many days, but I have triumphed over his house. Now, you can imagine when archaeologists read that so long ago and they compared it with the text of the biblical data, they said, hang on, this is, this is almost the same. This is clearly the same story. In other words, we're talking about historical accuracy. Here's another one. Let's come to Iraq, ancient Babylon. We'll come back here in our second session in more detail, but have a look at this. In the biblical data, it mentions that liver omens were made. Let me read it to you here. Let's read it from the biblical records. For the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way, meaning he's got a decision to make. He has to decide, is he going to go to war or not go to war? What decision is he going to make? He's like the parting of the ways. At the head of the two ways, to use divination. So he's going to use magic, perhaps, He's going to use that. He made his arrows bright. He consulted with images, his, his, his statues and so on. What should I do? He looked in the liver. Now, you notice the biblical writers mentioned that the liver was used in connection with knowing what I should do, what, what I should do about the future. Now, when you go to the British, British Museum, you can see on display a liver omen tablet. Now, we know how they use these things. They would take a sheep, cut out the sheep's liver, and they would look at the colours and the patterns of the sheep's liver, and they would compare it with their little clay models because they knew over time, ah, a, a liver this colour with that pattern, ah, that means you're in trouble if you go to war. Don't do that right now. Or if it's this colour, it means your love life is in trouble. You better get that fixed up because you're going to lose your wife or something, you know. So based on the past, they made these clay models and they compare it with the sheep's liver that they were looking at. They considered these omens of the future, you see. So here the biblical writer, whoever it was, he knew this was quite correct. This is, he, he obviously came from that, that time frame. So he portrayed that very accurately. Here's another one. This is from 600 BC. King Jehoiachin rationed 
tablet or rations are mentioned in the biblical writings here. You know, we'll see in a moment, Nebuchadnezzar made three raids against Jerusalem. This is a famous king who's mentioned in ancient history from Babylon. He made three raids, 605, 597 BC, and he destroyed Jerusalem in 586. Now, I want you to notice what the biblical writers tell us. They tell us that the Babylonians took prisoners from Jerusalem and they took them to Babylon. And uh, one of them was a king by the name of Jehoiachin. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. In fact, it tells us further on, as for his, that's Jehoiachin's provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death, all the days of his life. In other words, for morning breakfast, you get pavlova. For lunchtime, you get Macca's pizza or whatever it is. You know, that's the way they put his rations down. So it's a food ration that the Bible mentions. Now, when archaeologists excavated in Iraq, they discovered, of all things, this very, a tablet with his rations on it. And you can see it today in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. This is Jehoiachin's ration tablet explaining how much food is given as a captive of the Babylonian king. So when the biblical writers wrote that he was a captive of the Babylonians and he received rations, in other words, this is what not some make-up story. This really has historical um, facts lie behind this thing. So this is what Albright was talking about. Let's come to the Hittites, and then we'll finish this first session. The Hittites... As far as scholars were concerned, for many years, they said these people never existed. This, these are mentioned in the Bible many times. In fact, 40 times the Hittites are mentioned in the biblical manuscripts, some of which are in the Dead Sea Scrolls. 40 times you can read about Solomon getting horses from the Hittites. You read how Abraham, the father of the Israelites, bought a field from the Hittites to bury his wife Sarah in. And uh, here's just one example uh, of its mention of the Hittites here. Look, it says, the kings of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. So here's one of the references. Now let's go to find out what they discovered. So the scholars said this is a, a mistake, this is a, this is a myth, this is a legend, this is a fairy tale that comes from the Bible. We, we don't know of the existence of these, existence of these people. Now, if you go to the Encyclopedia Britannica of the 1840s edition, you will discover eight lines on the Hittites, and they all come pretty much from the biblical data, because that's all we had. Now, since those times, the archaeologists have been excavating, in, especially in central Turkey, and they have found whole cities that belong to the Hittites. For example, here's the great capital of the Hittites, Atatusa, and we have some things on display from the Hittites uh, in, in the function room next door as well. They now knew these people did exist. They were certainly a massive empire in ancient times. You can travel, walk through the, the Lion Gate here at the city of Atusa. Just up the road a bit is this temple. You can see one of the Hittite gods here. And then some of these Hittite people with their nice looking hats on their head. They're quite cute, aren't they? And uh, you can even go to Abu Simbel today. Abu Simbel, the down south of Egypt. And when you go to Abu Simbel, one of the great... Uh, temples of Ramesses II, if you go inside, you can read the Egyptian account of a battle between the Hittites and the Egyptians. And it tells us here, Ramesses is fighting the Hittites. So the scholars knew very clearly that these people existed. 
The Bible mentioned them. Now we've discovered their cities. And now that we can read the Egyptian hieroglyphs, we can even see the Egyptians talked about them. In fact, if you go to the Istanbul Museum in Turkey, you can see a Hittite Egyptian peace treaty between Hattusili III, the king of the Hittites, and Ramesses II, the king of the Egyptians. So the scholars knew now the biblical data was correct. And they were wrong, and so they had to rewrite their history, and which was exactly as the Bible has portrayed, that these people certainly existed. And today now, thanks to modern research, we know how big they were. They rivaled the Egyptians. The Egyptians and the Hittites were, as we just saw, they had fights between them, and uh, they were a massive empire uh, along, around the time of the Assyrians as well. So this is what Albright was talking about, historically accurate indeed. A great empire that rivaled both the Egyptians and the Assyrians. So this is the point he's making. The biblical manuscripts have that detail. They're absolutely historically accurate indeed. So we have that. But what about the next part? What about the prophetic stuff, the proven track record? That's what we're going to look at when we come back. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.